Hey everybody, welcome to your off-week content for the Gimme the Loot podcast. The Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition actual play podcast that's streaming now. Up this week is another guest quest, and this time, Dr. Emily Friedman stops by to talk about her scholarly work and smells, surprisingly enough. Dr. Friedman was an absolute delight to have on the show, may have tripped up and committed herself and to other academics to coming back and fighting the Pentagoons for charity, and is still somebody that I maintain is one of the best Twitter follows on the internet. So check out her information in the show notes below. And as with all our guests, we ask that you give them a follow, show them some support, check out their work to let them know how much we appreciate them coming on. To catch these streams when they're live, head over to twitch.tv forward slash GMDLcast and click the follow button so you'll get a notification when we get live. And follow us at GMDLcast on Twitter as we... Post a lot of notifications there. We have an incredibly big fight night this week with the crew from D&D Minus, and we'll get to see how professional podcasters and comedians fare against semi-professional actual play people. It's going to be a lot of fun. Anyway, just a reminder, Gimme Loot podcast and all its streaming content are not family-friendly shows due to a mix of profanity, fantasy violence, and gore, and the occasional bit of crude humor, although we do try and class it up a little bit for the guests. We don't succeed, but we do tr- We do try. Once again, thank you for listening, and a special thank you to our patrons whose investment in this show help us bring bigger and better content. If you want to check out some of the cool stuff they get for supporting the Pentagoons, head on over to patreon.com forward slash GMDLcast. Cool. That'll do it for this one. Be sure to tune in Thursday, 7.30 Central, twitch.tv forward slash GMDLcast to catch the Pentagoons up against the D&D Minus crew. And as always... Hope you enjoy the rebroadcast of the show. Boom. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to a, uh, we always start jar. Welcome to the stream, Dr. Freeman. We start incredibly jarring. Um, <laughs> yes. It's kind of, it's sneak attack is kind of our brand. Uh, welcome to another episode of Guest Quest, uh, the TTRPG community uh, interview podcast brought to you, or stream brought to you by the Gimme the Loot podcast, the Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition actual play podcast that will not be afraid to constantly ask its guests this week to just dumb it down just a little for us. Uh, because joining us this week uh, is Dr. Emily Friedman. That's right. I said doctor. I'm going to lean into that because it's cool. Dr. Emily C. Friedman is an associate professor of English at Auburn University, uh, where she brings her deep love of 18th century, of the 18th century fan studies and textual technologies to her love of games of all kinds, including her Dungeons and Dragons campaign set up uh, in the 18th century. She's the author of multiple book chapters and essays on actual plays as a new genre, is the co-founder of Critical Role Bib, the first crowdsourced bibliography for academic work on critical role and other actual plays. She's also the editor of an upcoming cluster of post-45 contemporaries on Beyond the Dungeon, tabletop RPGs, actual play, and very long-form storytelling. Now, I... 
I did it. Hey! Uh, uh, I I met Dr. Friedman. Uh, it feels like probably a little bit over a year ago uh, when she was very gracious enough to participate in a uh, a uh, actual play for Jasper's Game Day, which is a fantastic organization. Uh, she was a delight to play with. Thank you so much, Dr. Friedman, for jumping on the stream for us thanks, this evening. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. I think that is my first and probably last uh, kind of live streamed game, at least for the foreseeable future, because I'm a I'm not that kind of dork. I study those kinds of dorks <laughs> in the wild. <laughs> well, you 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 were delightful. You, if I remember correctly, you had uh, made the very brave and bold choice to let your students pick the magical item. Yes, uh, that uh, that you would bring to the table, and uh, ended up with a cloak of billowing, um, an extremely Todd the Tiefling magical item, <laughs> uh, uh, which which you you leaned into uh, leaned into quite well. T joining us uh, this week and. Two individuals who did a surprising amount of homework for this stream, oh, of which I have never been more proud for. Oh, Guys, no. say hello. Uh, I'm I'm Harlan. I play Todd the Tiefling on the Gimme Lou podcast. And when I saw a doctor in front of it, I was like, I guess I should do my research. I don't. And then I was just like, Whoa, wait a minute. I would need about another month to really get get, get a hold of this. But uh, yeah, thanks thanks for coming on. And uh, I'm Jamie, and I play Eldrin on the Gimme the Loop podcast. And uh, yeah, I I just sit here and and make stupid jokes and play play D and D. I'm not sure which part you're selling yourself short on, and which part you're overestimating there. If, but we'll, we're going to like, so in in the feed. So to keep in mind, and again, uh, 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 when you when we first really talked about you having on, I sent the guys your information, the guys. Like, this a couple of months to prep for this one because this is a little bit more complicated probably than watching uh, G4 TV. Uh, and then uh, even then sent them um, your article. Your most recent article came out on um, Valentine's Day, basically. Oh, on Valentine's Day, on the rambling, um, and was a pretty good, uh, a pretty good overview, uh, and and I think discussion of a moment in critical role in actual plays as a whole. That's the link I sent the guys to do the research. Harland, would you like to tell her what piece you actually ended up reading because you didn't get the link? Uh, avoiding racism, race, and representation in Austin-inspired games. That's what hey. I read. That is so. I I sent them. A lighter piece to read, and man, Harlan <laughs> dove right. He, he he texted me. He's like, "This is intimidating." I had to look up what the Regency was. Oh shit! <laughs> no clue. No clue about half but he, stuff. But he like so so to take it back a little bit. Would you would you please tell the stream a little bit more about what you do and and what your what your work uh, kind of coming to the academic work that you're doing? Sure. So first thing is. Um, I'm kind of like the middle of a Venn diagram, right? So long time tabletop player, kind of all the way back to the 90s when you know we were in the rise of White Wolf. Um, table uh, Dungeons and Dragons at that point was something that, you know, my cousins, my older cousins played in the back room and they didn't let us play, right? Um, mm. And uh, so I went to college and I thought I was going to like study Russian lit and that didn't happen. And I stumbled my way into what's called the long 18th century because 18th centuryists are like, what, 1700 to 1800? No, 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 no. 
1860-1835. We were like on the expansion, right? And uh, so I study the formation of the early novel and how audiences created that and how, you know, and I became really fascinated with, you know, this idea that this is a genre that we all know now and we think of as like a way to, you know, study in school and they're big and they're thick and, but they were the video games of the 18th century. People were afraid that their children were going to read them and like, you know, get bad ideas, do things in private that they shouldn't, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so along the way, I've become really interested in other genres that do a similar kind of work. And so when we got to the rise of actual play, starting with, you know, at least in terms of streaming, right? Like the acquisitions incorporated kind of stuff uh, and, and that sort of thing. I became really interested in like, oh wait, there's a new thing happening and nobody knows the rules. And so everybody's kind of figuring out the rules. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, I wrote a piece for an edited collection on critical role and narrative time. How do critters, even with just campaign one, figure out how to consume it. Um, and that kind of spiraled into uh, a class on tabletop role-playing games that got really popular. And that led to <laughs> people following me on Twitter and offering to come to my visit my class. And now there's a book project in the works. Uh, so it's just kind of gotten bigger and bigger from there. So this fall, I'm teaching a graduate course on the 18th century as it's represented in games. So we can talk more about what the Regency is, uh, that late 18th century moment uh, that I like to call the Age of Revolutions. Um, and uh, alongside a undergraduate research seminar, which is going to look explicitly at actual play and what's going on there. I think that I think cool. that gives you an origin story and where we are yeah. right now. It's 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 really cool. I tell people when uh, when you were coming out, like this is one of the few people that I follow. You know, because I got onto Twitter to promote the podcast, really. But you're one of the few people that I follow on Twitter to actually follow because one, th the cool content that you put out, and two, you also tweet out a lot about l life as an academic and and have opened a pretty fascinating window even from a, from a professional standpoint of what it, you know, what the publication cycle is like, what the class cycle is like dealing with students, the challenges of, of being a woman in that space. There's, there's so highly, highly recommend you as a Twitter follow, uh, just, just for, and of course, all the other stuff that you do as well, because it really, you, you touch on some really just cool bases, which it's, it's been, it's been a blast to, to see. Yeah. It's super weird, by the way, this has been the kind of year where I hit that, they say for academic Twitter, because academic Twitter is, you know, not, doesn't see the numbers that, you know, other <laughs> other parts of Twitter do, right? So when we hit 5,000, we're like, oh, shit. Um, and <laughs> I had a colleague who was fired for tweets about the football team before they even got here. I mean, he's also a prison abolitionist. So, you know, the two things kind of, you know. Uh, they got mad at him about the football and then they found out that he was, you know, against, you know, the, you know, everything to prison pipeline. And so, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm keenly aware that the more visible I get, I mean, I've got tenure, mm -hmm. but you can still like, it's not make your life difficult. And of course, being a woman yeah. talking about games, that's fun. And of course, if you talk about critical role, 
that's a fun, messy place to be. So it's interesting. Yeah. Like I'm not, I've not intentionally grown my audience. It just kind of has happened a little bit organically and hopefully it will stay a safe, sane place where people don't get mad at me for weird shit, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's been one of the cool things for, and again, coming as from a place of privilege, jumping into the, the TTRPG space, how welcoming and general low tolerance for ass hattery there has been. Um, because look, I was scared of Twitter, but as I got into it, I was like, oh, here's my people. Okay, cool. But I can imagine, and, and you know, we ran into this with, with uh, had this discussion with one of our collaborator, collaborators on the side podcast that we're working on. It's like, yeah, I, as, as a woman in the gaming space, there's a whole other slew of BS that I have to deal with. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can imagine that can be pretty rough. And I don't, I don't critical role fandom, star Wars fandom, uh, like in, in the spectrum of potentially toxic fandoms, where do you put them on the spectrum? Oh no, I think no star Wars is a totally different world. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. they've, they've, they've had, they've had decades to hone their craft, right? Like uh, it's, it's also see. just a bigger right. media space. It's going to be interesting to see as critical role fandom stops being about what one streamer uh, who's involved with mm-hmm. it, who talked to my class called, you know, tantric viewing. Um, now there are other ways, <laughs> <laughs> there are other ways into critical role that don't involve yeah. like obsessively watching for four hours or more a yeah. week. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that infusion of other kinds of fans will transform the space. It's definitely, yeah. there's a great book, um, really inexpensive. It's a crossover academic uh, book. I'm not in it. Uh, I'm just, I think it's great. Um, Called Watch Us Roll. That's about, it's like the first kind of truly about actual play book out of McFarland. And uh, they have, there's an article by the editor, Shelley Jones, uh, that talks about the way that critical role fandom is aggressively self-censoring in a lot of ways and Mm. sometimes and some in some ways that's really good right like you want to make a positive space you know i just saw um jasmine that bronze girl bueller going off on twitch about how yeah no you don't have to be in my space if you're not here for the community right um you know so there's good parts to that kind of that work but what it also means is like the fan information like their wiki and stuff is like there's shit you don't talk about. There's shit, there's information Mm. that's not there, um, which is really quite interesting, right? As an academic, you think, oh, the information needs to be there. But, you know, there's there's stuff stuff you don't talk about. And uh, yeah, I mean, so it's it's interesting. Um, I avoid a lot of it and I don't know whether I just have really good filters or what, Mm -hmm. but... Or I'm just not on Tumblr enough, uh, where a lot of stuff goes to die. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know it's it's question marks. I'm either doing something right or I'm missing something. Uh, but no, I think on the whole, the core critical role fandom is pretty is is I, they're not they're they're dedicated. <laughs> they're love. Most of them are pretty lovely and productive. It's a very right. It's a space that seems really invested because they've been rewarded in um, fan art and other kinds of creative responses. A lot of those folks then have become creators Mm -hmm. in interesting ways. Um, I mean, but yeah, there's always going to be the toxic underbelly of everything. Oh, Um, yeah. There there is a certain ratio of ass hattery that you just can't escape in human beings. And it's unfortunate, but uh, if you can get that... 
ratio of X to Y uh, just right. It, it's still a, a decent it's group a, of people to be around. It's always a small group of those people, but it just seems like they are the, the loudest. loudest and their their Twitter fingers just go work a little faster than everybody else's because they just bubble to the top. Yeah, well, and it's also, you know, it's, it's a, it's horrible that the lava like flow of the worst toxicity comes out when even mild critique is, is involved, right? Yeah. And so the fact that the space is extremely radioactive, particularly for critter people who identify as fans of the show who are mm -hmm. swana or people of color who are you know expressing you know mild concern about say you know the new intro or what have you um mm -hmm. that's that's troubling that's the part where i get worried yeah. Yeah, and I know there was. Um, I I am not a big Critical Role guy. I have I know, bounced I know. off it. Uh, <laughs> I know you bounced off it because, hard. Yeah, I and I've I've tried to go back. Um, I have watched the cartoon. Um, I did I did manage to make it through the through the cartoon, and I've tried to listen. I've listened to. I think the um, the the side quest that uh, uh, please say her name because I'm going to get it wrong again. It's Abria Iyengar. Thank you so much. I am I'm terrible at names. I apologize. Uh, Abria Iyengar, the, I actually managed to make it through the side quest bit that she DM'd because it just was so, one, I love anything that she does. And two, it was a little bit more compact, I think. Um, yeah. And, and was easier to get in. They really, like, so when I'm teaching this stuff, I have to figure out, like, what's a good entry point for students who don't know anything? So I have a few students and I may have more as the kind of years and semesters go on who are familiar with critical role in full. I had some straight on critters. So the fact that Abria mm -hmm. came to class and Amy came to class was amazing. Um, yeah. But uh, finding a way in, I think they also shine and there's some really interesting innovations in their Call of Cthulhu one shot when run by Talos and Jaffe. I think that's, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that quite frankly, like among the innovative actual plays, um, in terms of content and like exploring ideas, Liam O'Brien's three-part Liam's Quest is it'll mm. fuck you up. It's 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 the one I have a I have a colleague here who's the head of the theater department, and he's slowly getting into all of this because it's a fascinating performance mm. space. And that's the thing we're like gonna watch together as a kind of like yeah. Oh, yeah acting um it's a fascinating <laughs> and also just it's a voice acting per, bravura performance all of critical yeah. world is but that one's a particular you know when the when the players are impressed uh it's it's a good sign mm -hmm. but yeah i mean i think there's a lot of other you know geek and sundry there's going to be a history of geek and sundry someday and what has come mm -hmm. out of it and critical role is one of those things la by night is another one of those things and then what the hyper rpg folks are doing uh, what zaclam eubanks is doing with Kolok that just came back is just is just bonkers um you know there's a lot of amazing pathways forward in actual play um, and that's one of the things I'm hoping to explore more in my research and in my teaching is like, where's the innovations that are really working with audiences? Um, you know, what's, what's yeah. really satisfying. Yeah. It's, it's obviously it's a very crowded space right now. Mm -hmm. Lord knows we participate in it, yeah. but it is, um, there, there, there seem to be certain boundaries where the actual, actual hardcore, actual plays, which are very, which to a certain extent, that's 
kind of what Critical Role is set up as with the caveat of like, look, these are professionally trained voice actors and performers. And even though they structure their show as a, hey, this is just a full-blown, like a home game that's being televised. It's also heavily produced with professional voice actors sure. versus there. there's that in the spectrum. And then there is our end, which is certainly not heavily produced, but definitely edited for time and and clipped down a little bit more for just for flow more than anything else to kind of cut out the some of the, oh my God, Turner spends three minutes turning to page 45 of the player's handbook. The real stuff of D&D, right? Like the yeah. real stuff of yeah. most games. <laughs> Right, right. Because Harland won't write down how far his jump distance yep. is for the life of or him. Learn how and I have to look that works. Right. He could, he could <laughs> save this so many, time, so many times. So many times. So much one, time. One formula. So much time. Uh, it And it's not even that complicated formula. It doesn't stick in my brain. Is, as you look at the genre as a whole, do you see a trend more one direction or the other? Or is it still pretty, pretty wild west as far as the different genres and subgenres and and why isn't this its own genre on po apple podcast oh geez. lord knows oh, there's the i wish man that made my life so right. much easier um it's been really interesting to kind of look at people who are doing kind of more of like i'm a i'm a literary historian right i do qualitative research most of the time i don't do quantitative mm -hmm. there are people who have done quantitative research in this space like taken actual plays and like counted like how they use time mm. and there's some really cool stuff some really cool work that's there but yeah i mean it's it's exploding rapidly and that's one of the interesting things in terms of thinking about as a historian of this right so, and the history still being written um kind of trying to decide what do we want to remember what's the what are the yeah. key touchstones and there are some things you know, there's a reason why there's a book on critical role that's being devised, right? That's being pitched mm -hmm. and that a bunch of us are writing chapters for. Because you can go to a publisher and say, these people got $11 million. They have hundreds of thousands of viewers. Yep. They have a million subs on, on Twitch now. What the fuck? Um, you know, you can, yeah. you can make that argument, right? Um, you can make the argument for anything sponsored by WotC or by, by the game dev, you know, by other like White Wolf or what have you. Um Chaosium, it's a little bit more wild westy, um, yeah. but because uh, they sponsor a bunch of stuff. But you know, you can make an argument for those kinds of things, and then you can make arguments for the ones that like have whole studios, the hyper RPG shows, mm -hmm. the 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 stuff that came out of Geek and Sundry. But right. there's this whole, you know, there's this whole podcast realm where the barrier to entry is, do you have the time to edit? Do you have a good enough mic? And do you have people who jive, right? And do you have a story that yeah. your audience is willing to go with you for? And that's the long tail, right, of media. It's, you know, what right. B. Dave, B. Dave loved to tell my students, right? Like, um, all you need is a thousand loyal fans to survive, right? And you build mm. off of that. And if you can get that, you're good. I mean, I think that the recent podcast um, statistics were like, if you're getting a couple of hundred downloads in the first week, you're in the top 10% of podcasts. Um, mm -hmm. Now, a scholar like me doesn't fucking know, right? Like, I can't right. be like, oh, please sort them by how many people downloaded them last week. Um, right. There's so much stuff behind walls that I can't know. So I can't use that as a metric. And then my own taste mm -hmm. is suspect. I'm a white lady. What the fuck do I know? I mean, I can tell you what this one nice late white lady from Texas who lives in Alabama 
likes, you know, but my, and my taste is, you know, shaped by what I get to watch and view. There's only so much time. These things even cut for time are often an hour, two hours. I try to dip into as much as possible. I tweet constantly begging people to tell me about their shows um, and tell me what's exciting about them and why I should go watch them um, to kind of give Mm -hmm. everything an honest shot. But you know, it's, it's hard. Um, and then there's this yeah. existing network. It's largely LA based, you know, Gabe Hicks has mm-hmm. talked about the East coast move, but it ain't happened yet. Um, you know, and, um, we, and so you got this tangle and I got to write a book, explain to people who aren't in this space, why they should fucking care, what they should watch right. and how they should watch or listen with care and attention. And I am in constant terror that I'm missing out on something very big and exciting that I, that just hasn't right. come up in my algorithm that hasn't mm-hmm. come up in the discourse that isn't getting the eyeballs it needs to. And this is what happened in the 18th century with novels, right? Explosion of media, Uh, Some things were bestsellers in their own day and some of those were crap and some of those were good. And then we have things that were constantly recovering that were, um, that are amazing and that are really cool and satisfying now. And we publish them again, but you know, you can't tie it to one metric. So welcome to my problems. Welcome to my life. (laughs) So, so what you're saying is we really need to encourage the East coast, West coast uh, uh, actual play rivalry. (laughs) Very similar to 90s hip hop. East Coast, West Coast (laughs) rivalry. Not like, uh, you know, maybe without, you know, no, no. I'm just saying, our (laughs) podcast is based off of a Biggie song. Yeah, it's true. Or at least the title very technically which has absolutely nothing to do with the content thanks to the cast <laughs> i wanted to make I mean, a terrible 90s drama <laughs> reference but they I, said no honestly i mean there's a studio in atlanta i know atl by night is 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 uh you know is, is working and if and if game hicks uh create something in philly i will be there like like little spider-man with my little notebook just like p- taking notes right i you know i went to i went to school outside of philly so give me an excuse right it'd be lovely to to do that um as it is you know i'm scheduled to go to la in the fall for a conference where we're hoping to bring together people in this space to talk to each other academics and people who are like on Mm -hmm. the production side to talk about like okay how do we talk about this in a world where you know the biggest players are all under ndas um or don't want to talk about their process or Um, And that's where teaching has really come in and really kind of uh, hyped up and like exploded my ability to work as a researcher because they might not want to talk to me. I'm just a dumb professor. But if you but there is a certain number of people who are like, can I talk to students? I can talk to the next generation and tell them about stuff. This is amazing. Let Mm -hmm. me do that. And luckily, I have some former students who are also in this space, like London Carlisle um, came out of our theater program. He's now New York based, another East Coast role player um, uh, who runs games for Chaosium uh, and is also like part of Satine Phoenix's network and that sort of deal. 
And London will actually be bringing some of their cast members next month or the month after to come fight the party of five. Oh, so he's shit. actually Good already booked on a future fight night. So, uh, so yeah, we we're punching above our weight class on a, on, a, on a lot of levels. Uh, yeah, I think I, I forget which one of his because he's got multiple shows. I forget which one he's he's bringing on for a fight night, but we're really stoked about that. Um, and, and it's been uh, so taking a step back from modern. Uh, TTRPGs because I do want to dip into some of your other work because again the 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 breadth of the fascinating shit that you're into um, let's talk a little bit because you tweeted about this the other day you wrote a book about smell yes. Jamie actually did the homework and responded to your tweet because I texted like she's coming on this week you guys better <laughs> respond to this tweet and get your character sent so I don't I don't I didn't see if you responded to Jamie's uh, Eldrin Thaneros oh uh, that is was a, the last one the and I've been in class ever since so uh so yeah let me um uh, let me get my little little database up so talk to me about this character okay. All right, so uh, Jamie, if you would, so the for the for the stream who may have not uh, follow, who may not be following Dr. Friedman, and if you're not and haven't already, we will get the uh, the Twitter handle and everything out at the end. Um, she basically said, "Hey, going to bring back this deal where I ask you to describe the character, and then I will describe the appropriate perfume or scent for that character." Uh, Jamie, if you would please give your synopsis for Eldrin Thaneros. Uh Do you want me to read my tweet, or do you want me to just just uh, do you others? Eldrin is a. It's, her, be, it's becoming a tradition for us to call you yeah, out thanks. for not talking to the guests. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so. Yes, uh, Eldrin is a Wood Elf Horizon Walker Ranger, uh, and he is very critical of the rest of his teammates. Uh, he's always uh, looking for something to criticize uh, that they're doing wrong. Um, he. He dresses in. A, he, he recently acquired a a item that gives him a cloak made of denim, uh, and he he has a very eighties wow. look going on. Uh, yeah. Oh, eighties. Um, um, yeah, yeah. He's got like a, a mullet a, and eighties denim style uh, cloak. <laughs> it's, wow. it's a braided belt, uh, this, braided belt of dwarven kind. This, which this is took a turn, him. man. Oh. I, I thought I had an idea, and then what? What is? What is even happening? Um, yeah, he's yeah. Because <laughs> uh, on the one hand, the, the the denim definitely would seem to suggest kind of going into you know the the 80s vintage route in terms of perfumes right mm -hmm. um and uh but you know fuck that no no <laughs> i i reject um and so i find myself thinking about a perfume by a house called zoologist where all of them are like named after um, and I can send you the link. Um, then they're all named after different animals, right? Um, and oh, cool. so this one is, I won't tell you that I'll let you guess the animal that this is named after. Um, it's eucalyptus, uh, a, a kind of small, sweet, uh, uh, flower called a mimosa, black tea, incense, spices with a kind of baseline of like green, rich vegetation, and then like the animalic musk, amber, and then some oak moss, although it's probably fake because oak moss is illegal. Uh, so that, that sounding like a good vibe for, for yeah, your character? I dig that. Uh, so, 
Yeah, and I think it might fit with your character because um, it's called koala, which are like the bitchiest mm-hmm. animals I know. Um, I like that. That is appropriate. That is appropriate. Thank you. <laughs> so, so w- w- while we're at it, Todd to Tiefling's probably a little bit more traditional. Oh. Uh, give her, a, give her a little bit of a Todd synopsis, if you well, could. Todd is a uh, Tiefling bounty hunter. Uh, okay. Yes, he's he he's a little conscious about his height. Not too conscious about his height. He's about he comes in at around a strong five eight. Um. <laughs> He, he, uh, swashbuckler rogue. Definitely swashbuckler rogue. He's got a little bravado to him, thinks he's better than everyone else. Even in the back of his mind knows he's not there, but he doesn't give that outward uh, portrayal. He he portrays this big bravado, confidence kind of guy, but he's got some some, uh, quirks about him. So that's, that's usually him. In a so, nutshell, and, and wears a lot of leather. He's got some leather oh, pants. Oh, oh, He's got that's, leather that's pants. very important. I, I knew that. <laughs> that's extremely important. Um, so, so swashbuckler, as in like he's he's got his history of the sea, a. Eh? No, no. He's, he's, so just sh- you're swashing non-oceanic buckles. Okay, <laughs> that's right. That is no, right. no, no. That 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 works for me. Okay, so. Hmm. Let me think. Um, and and classic, classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking there's a um there's a there's a very famous classic perfumer um uh and named um Alberto Morias. Uh, who did everything from like the super ultra fresh, like CK one to some stuff from Bulgari. That's like rich and like chai tea. Um, And he does this kind of ghostly vetiver and vetiver is a classic masculine scent. So it's very green. It's you smell it a lot in men's cologne. Um, And this one has like a little bit of whiskey, a little bit of papyrus, um, and a little bit of like smoky ash with with the leather. It's called Mythique Vetiver um, by a house called Mizenseer. Um, and I will I will hook you up with the link to mm-hmm. where you can get a sample for. I, I love Lucky Scent. They're an indie place in LA that uh, will send you a sample of basically anything they have. So a, a uh, just to kind whiskey. of get a scent. A smoky whiskey cologne sounds good. I would like to try that myself. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I this is me like doing this much, much faster than I normally do. So. Um, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. no. Great. Hey, look, we, 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 so, we appreciate you being game and firing from the hip on that. Uh, for so, sure. Well, for just sure. just to say that, like, if if it's something that you vibe with after trying the scent and you're like, oh, shit, that price tag is intense. I can I can also <laughs> tell you about some some other things that give that same feeling without being like. To ching, um, that is also a thing that I do. <laughs> so, uh, Doctor Friedman doesn't isn't in the habit of of sniffing your your TTRPG players. She actually wrote a book called Reading Smell uh, in the eighteenth Reading Smell in eighteenth century fiction, uh, which provides models for how to incorporate olfactory knowledge into new readings of the literary form central to our understandings of the eighteenth century and moder- modernity in general. Um, uh, so, so fancy, again, doesn't I, it? 
It it does. And I saw it. I was like, finally coming out in paperback, which means that I I can actually say, please go buy it. Uh, When it comes (laughs) out in paper, it will stop being a hundred dollars and be like a good thirty. And then it's great. I love it. It's my stupid little book that kind of I meant to write an article. I have this habit, right? Like. I think I'm writing an article about critical role and all of a sudden I'm re- I have this whole new research program. I think I'm writing an article about smell and it becomes a whole ass book. Um, so this is, this is the thing that sometimes happens. Uh, and I guess it happens a lot in my own research program. Um, so there's a chapter on, um, it's all the smells that transformed during the 18th century that like came into the kind of Anglophone British osmology like their scent world and and twisted it upside down so tobacco changes in this period because tobacco is a fairly recent import and people stop snuffing it and they start smoking it and so that changes and people write about it there's a smell of other people because whenever two cultures come together if we have documentation Mm -hmm. of both those cultures we have them both going away, writing back home and saying, you will have no idea how bad these people smell. Like the English are like, you know, the, the, the English meet the Japanese and the Japanese are like, these people smell like rotten milk. What is wrong with them? I don't think they bathe. There's something really wrong here. You know, these moments of, of cultural contact. And of course, these are still things like I just had a call a couple weeks ago with the LA Times, which was doing a piece on... Um, the his uh, kind of uh, I think it's a sriracha factory that like exploded or did something oh, yeah. bonkers, right? Yeah. And the scent went everywhere. Yeah. And there's a long history in California of new industries coming in that are pungent, often uh, being uh, kind of led by new people to the area uh, and mm-hmm. people freaking out, right? Like we, I, I remember from from elementary school, you know, talking, you know, talking shit about somebody's lunch, talking shit about what they smell like, you know, this is, this is something you have to be aware of, right, that we use yeah. this as our smell is the only sense that we perceive and our brain doesn't do the higher order discerning, it just reacts. It's our danger mm-hmm. scent sense sense uh so when we smell something new and novel we go on alert um and we have to kind of decide danger or not danger um and so we have we have human beings have used that in the past to do all kinds of horrible things and we use it now to do all kinds of horrible things Mm -hmm. um so I I was get, I was going to use it to badmouth Houston, but Mr. Bible Pants already oh, fuck. Uh, beat me to Mr. it. Mr. Bible Pants, sir, I am proudly from H Town. I went to yeah. elementary school with Miss Beyonce Knowles. You will take H Town out of your mouth. No, no, sir, not not gonna happen. Lubbock, wait, you said, we're we're all, we're only making fun of the way Lubbock smells wait, on this particular wait, she, particular. She I will, I will accept Lubbock. She says she went to school outside Philly, so she's probably been in New York. So you smelled the New Jersey Turnpike. Oh, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah. My sister lived in various parts of uh, New York and surrounding uh, for until they moved to D.C. fairly recently. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> exciting smells all over the place. Right? Hey. Hey, I grew up on a cattle ranch. Believe me, I, there's been a whole in in Florida, no less. Oh. So there's a whole cornucopia of biological matter that. But I've it been is true that paper mills are like the worst smells in the whole world. Like they mm. are, they are, they are. Yeah. I have a 
a friend and colleague, Jonathan Sashain, who's written a history of paper uh, and paper making mm-hmm. and how that's contributed to culture and things like that. And yeah, I mean, paper making, the processing, I mean, wood pulp So is it the chemical throws- the smell? <laughs> Yeah, it's the process. These days, it's it's yeah. definitely the process. Um, I love to tell my students that like before the wood pulp, it was just everybody's used underwear because it's it was flax based paper before wood pulp, and so rag men would go around and get your linen shift and mm. process it back down. So you insulted someone's writing by saying it was going to become toilet paper, um, relics of the bum. Uh, is the kind of 18th century poetic line uh, that uh, gets used. Nice. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. No, uh, my, my, my graduate school education outside of York, uh, England, where Cadbury is much more pleasant. Mm-hmm. The gentle whiff of so, chocolate. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that your chat is incidentally full of people just talking about disgusting scents. This is not what I expected when I wrote this book. Uh, You you think you're going to write a book about like pretty perfumes and then you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. ammonia and tobacco and sulfur and BO. Yeah, this (laughs) I guess this is where where we are. I think it's one of the lines that has always stuck with me from the Sandman where uh, in the back half of the book, one of the characters uh, is at a Ren Fest. And he's like, you know what they always get about the, the, the these people get wrong about Ren Fest is nobody realized how much everything fucking stank back then <laughs> and how we were all covered in shit pretty much. Well, and that's the what weird thing, old- right? Is like, so I get that a lot, right? Like the idea that like, mm-hmm. oh, the past smelled worse. I'm like, no, the past smelled mm-hmm. different, right? If we yeah. were, if we went back as time travelers, yeah, it would smell gross to us. But I often wonder, like, what the world would smell like to a time traveler who came forward. Because there, there mm-hmm. are some scents that are not there. We have decent indoor plumbing um, that we didn't have uh, even 100 years ago. Um, but, uh, or I guess 150 years ago at this point. But um, the smell of air conditioning is a, is a fairly mm. new smell in our osmology. My grandparents like noticed it, right? That there's these, there's new stuff, right? And of course, like people have scent sensitivities now. Like I imagine, yeah. I imagine an 18th century woman walking into Sephora and just keeling over and dying, right? I, um, I can't walk you know, into those places without getting a massive headache. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. There is- it's true. And so one of the things that I try to say in my book is this idea that um, we can't judge the past based on our own noses because right. it, it smell. The other thing that we know about smell is that it's deeply personal and culturally contingent. Like what smells good to you mm-hmm. is not going to necessarily smell good to me um, based on what we grew up with, the foods that we ate, you know, the, you know, the worlds that we've lived in. And that's not to say that my smells good and your smells bad, but that, we are all, even even uh, those of us who are living in the same place at the same time can be separated by how smells impact our, our brains. Mm-hmm. Remove 300 yeah. years and, you know, all bets are off. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we can judge. We just shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We can always. We, we, we can judge and judge. frequently do. Let's be clear. Like, we'll, we'll just, Very true. Very uh, true. Can you? Can you talk about uh, one of the things that's popped up in, on on the, the cast a couple of times is that Jamie and uh, Harland, as I learned the point <laughs> at which box with the right 
person is in. I'll learn the camera eventually. It's only our 500 stream. Um, it went to uh, went to school and, and took some classes with uh, Dave Arneson from D&D Origins fame as part of False. Can you talk a little bit about your class on D&D? And it's really more focused on the narrative aspect of it. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, so what's amazing about coming into this space as a comparative newbie, especially in terms of newbie to TTRPG studies is, um, you know, as a scholar, you kind of want to find your niche. Um, and there's not a whole lot of people who talk about what's called narratology, the study of how narratives are constructed. Um, Jennifer Grueling is one of them. Um, and she edited the book that I'm in uh, for that critical role narrative timepiece that, that came out last year. Um, but even now, now that we have actual play, you know, the, the narrative levels that she describes, which are like, mm -hmm. there's the narrative level of the GM talking, right? And telling you what's mm -hmm. happening. There's the narrative level of the player in character talking about what they're doing. There's the narrative right. level of asking for chips at the table, right? Like, or the group chat or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the levels that Jennifer Grueling outlines in her work. Um, and then you get actual play and all of a sudden people are watching you, right? And so like the essay that I wrote for The Rambling talks, like the first thing it's talking about is this moment that has an emotional impact because it's not about the, it's about what's called the table talk. This, you know, past mm -hmm. the chips level has risen to the level of, oh, this is the emotional impact. This is why if you care about right. critical role, you care because it's happening in this level too, um, at right. least in that moment. And that's the thing that like the adaptation is going to have to not be able, can't translate because it's, right. it's gone. Um, there's going to yeah. be other, it, it's a give and take. Um, yeah. And so uh, when I thought about like how I was going to responsibly teach something, I was like, okay, I'm going to teach what these other people have written. But the thing I know the most is how to talk about how stories are built um, and to think about these objects as story making engines or actual play performances as, as narratives. Um, so that's kind of been my beat uh, for the class that I taught last fall. Um, I'm going to add in that 18th century, like thinking about representation stuff when I work with graduate students um, this, this coming fall. And then the, uh, the new version of the undergrad class is going to kind of do a deeper dive into actual play itself, thinking about the, the people. I have an undergraduate research assistant now who uh, is a BFA in, uh, she's a design specialist. So she and I are like watching Kolok and just like taking notes on the camera angles and the cinematography mm. and the lighting because they're trying all this stuff in a 17 by 17 room um, yeah. with 10 cameras and like, you know, lights from Amazon. Um, right. And so, uh, I'm also a theater historian and performance historian. So that also becomes part of what I feel comfortable talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be the person who like talks most uh, TTRPG and actual play has been um, talking about fan culture and mm -hmm. uh, I'm much more interested in craft. I'm much more in interested in talking to creators about and that ends up being a little bit about fan culture because everybody's like on one level of fan and on another level of creator and, and you kind of move back and forth between those levels. 
uh, including myself. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I find myself drifting more and more to kind of writing the kinds of pieces that I wrote for the rambling where it's like, um, I'm going to, I'm going to closely read. I'm going to talk to you about a performance. I'm going to talk to you about how it was built and the craft involved and talk a little less about, you know, the fan art and the cosplay right. and things like that, even though that's amazing, but there's a ton of people and you can see them on crit roll bib who are doing that kind of work. Yeah. Cause it's easy to do. Cause you, if you don't have any access to anybody, um, right. I'm kind of leveraging the access that I increasingly have as a member of the community too. Um, I am the senior ranking critical role scholar. I'm the, I'm the <laughs> oldest person. Nice. I'm the oldest yeah. person in this game, <laughs> basically uh, who's, who's working ex- explicitly on actual play. Um, as opposed to we can say, other stuff. We could say we've had the pioneering uh, actual play scholar. Oh, on our, uh, no, we, are, we, are, we are taking your feather and sticking it in our hat, too. No, right you're there. a pioneer. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Robin Hope was the first person. Her master's thesis. Mercer read her fucking master's thesis during campaign one. Um, nice. Uh, yeah. She's the very first pioneer. I. That's the beautiful also kind of revitalizing thing is like I work with so many what we call early career researchers so graduate students and people who are recently out and they're kind of the engine driving stuff forward I would not be writing this book except for uh, Maria Alberto who's a graduate student working on canon formation uh, including a chapter on critical role but also other kinds of canons um, who was like, I think maybe you should like pitch a book to this thing. And that didn't work out. But then I contacted one of my colleagues who's running, who's doing a series for Bloomsbury. And I said, Hey, I'm thinking about writing this kind of book. And he's like, Oh, funny. You should say that. I watched the legend of Vox Machina and now I'm watching Critical Role and I'm an 18th and 19th centuryist, but you know, now I'm interested in what you have to say. And so maybe this book could happen. So we'll see. Mm. Uh, we're at the proposal stage. Uh, I do not know the oh, rest awesome. of Maria's um, uh, dissertation in progress. Uh, you can find her um, also on on the tweets um, at, uh, let me look that up really quickly, um, at uh, Maria K. Alberto. Um, if, you're, if you're looking to hear about her cool ass work, uh, she, and she's also uh, a co-founder of Crit Roll Bib. Uh, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Um, th- I, there was... Uh, Mr. Bible Pants asks this, and this may not be your wheelhouse, but have as you look at the the as you're analyzing the stories as a whole, mm-hmm. and he's asked this question twice, and he'll give me hell in the Discord if I don't bring it up. Uh, do you see a, a higher percentage of characters that are orphans, and it's Walt Disney to blame for? That? I mean, Disney's to, um, to blame for so much. Um, my my <laughs> my colleague uh, in the theater department is a Disney historian, so you know much much can be laid at the the feet of of, of Mr. Walt. Um, you know, it's it, that's actually an interesting research question, and I've actually been trying to collect research questions to have undergraduates start to look into is uh, how many, you know, actual play characters have no families, that kind of thing. Um, I'm inclined, because mm-hmm. uh, mo- I think most D&D characters, um, if we were to survey the, you know, the the fandom, um, you know, right. hey, Watsy, call me, um, I'll help with your next survey. Uh, cause we didn't ask that question in the big long survey that just came out, that came out of while yeah. ago. Um, yeah, ex- but, yeah. uh, L- Liam O'Brien put it best when he was like, look, orphans have a reason to go somewhere else. Right. Like I just finished mm-hmm. a session zero, zero, 
with my local party, which is all history professors and a theater professor and me. Um, and we were building our party for Storm King's Thunder because our DM is a father uh, who also uh, ha- is like my connection to Arneson. They were at the same friendly local game store one billion years ago because um, he grew up in the area. But uh, he's a father of a young kid and... Even we've been doing modules, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of prefab for a while, uh, ever since his youngest kid was born, um, even though he's a homebrew guy, um, primarily because they're easier to run. Yeah. And we got in the Waterdeep Platinum box like a billion years ago. And he's so excited. And he's like, this is a city campaign. I need something linear. And I'm like, all right, I'll give you a month of I'll run like Witchlight and get these jokers to have total chaos. And then you'll come in with this linear right. campaign about, you know, giants and it'll be great. Um, so we did session zero zero and um, my friend and I kind of decided, we were like, can we be, please be furbolgs? Cause this mm-hmm. is a guy who does not allow tieflings at his table. Really? He's a very kind of yeah. like, yeah, he's super like what's li- what would actually be happen in the forgotten realms, right. which is really weird because my water deep character, cause we played a few mm-hmm. sessions in water deep before he lost it. Um, was a gnome artificer. And he's like, oh, so you're going to have a gun. And I'm like, I'm going to have a gun. <laughs> he's like, oh yeah, no, I can find, uh, here's the explanation, in, you know, of how that works in the Forgotten Realms. So like, oh, I did not know. Like, I do not associate you with this kind of, you know, mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we got Furbolgs. And so we have, we have this Furbolg um, little duo. Um, I am doing a total pacifist run because somebody had to be cleric and it's my turn. Cool. Um, but my, my, my dearest friend, uh, theater professor, um, wanted to have a gritty backstory because theater. Yeah. Um, and so he's basically Furball Ranger Batman, <laughs> as far as I can tell, which meant that we went from me thinking, oh, our clan sent us out in the world right. on a fact-finding mission about giants to, no, no, you were sent on that, you came home, and your clan is decimated. Like, <laughs> okay, great, super, awesome, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's wild um, to, uh, to do this kind of, you know, collaborative work together, because uh, you never know what's going to happen. Well, and I think that actually, t- Saganato asked if you read x-men at all uh and i yeah. and i think that ties into a little bit of the, the scene setting for i guess a lot of people's cultural context for adventurer type characters are superheroes and there is no deadlier uh, position to be in than to be a budding superheroes mother father uncle or or or, or near relative because they all get bumped off somewhere uh, on a long enough timeline yeah, in a world where we didn't have women in refrigerators, maybe that wouldn't yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. But we're not there yet. So here we are. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I definitely uh, love when a character choice includes this kind of rich background, right. um, you know, of, of human connection. And so when I run my 18th century D&D campaign, uh, it started as kind of a joke um, where I said, anybody who wants to play D&D at the American Society for 18th Century Studies Conference, the like national wow. nerd conference wow. for 18th century nice. scholars, like the only rule. Yeah, I was like, anybody can come. The only rule is it has to be either a fictional or real life 18th century person. Right. 
uh, that you and and I'll help you build the mechanics for you know what this Jane Austen character or what Jane Austen herself would, do, would, yeah. would be like in this kind of timey wimey you know sort of setting. And uh, our bad guy was the um, was William Beckford, who was secretly an incubus, uh, which seemed appropriate. He's uh, William Beckford wrote um, this kind of amazing orientalist novel um Vatek. and by amazing i mean it's astonishingly bizarre right. uh it's not necessarily good but it's fascinating um and he was able to write trippy things and build trippy things because he was the beneficiary of sugar plantation money so he was basically like the blood was directly on his hands oh god so yeah. that was very satisfying to everyone involved yeah. but yeah that was a that that initial table was 17 people mm. Good lord! And you're solo uh, DMing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I don't. I, I don't wow. claim to have done it especially well. I, I have a thing on my YouTube channel where I walk through what I did was mm-hmm. uh, this guy Horace Walpole, who was the author of the first Gothic novel. Um, his house, which is like this. It's built in the 18th century, but it's a throwback mm-hmm. to like medieval art. And he collected a bunch of stuff and he had his own printing press. He's a very weird guy mm-hmm. um, in that 18th century way. And he was their quest giver. And his house still exists. And there are great photos because it's been recently restored, Strawberry Hill House. And there's a map overlay with where all the stuff was. Oh, cool. In the, yeah. in the, and all the stuff survives at the at the Lewis Walpole Library at Yale. And they photographed it. And like, so they've made this like interactive map where you can kind of click through the rooms and like see the stuff. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to turn every single one of these things into a magic yep. item or, or something to attack them, right? Like, so you've got talking paintings, you've got, you know, the little dog statue became a blink dog. That's their new buddy, you know, all these kinds of things. And so uh, it's, it was it was an experience, right? Yeah. Seventeen people, mostly newbies. It's dialed down to six people, and ever since the we we played once a year for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and now with the pandemic, we play every other week, and oh, awesome. we do weird stuff. Yeah. And I read in modules to have kind of eighteenth century, like mostly independent stuff from the DMs Guild and stuff like that right. to have eighteenth century flavor. But all of these people are real and have all kinds of you know family continuities and connections that you can kind of play with and exploit uh for sure so so to because again this is another one of the topics i want to get to and you trans transition so artfully into it so get get quantify a little bit of exactly what 18th century flavor would be for the chat i know man i know that's uncorking the 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 cork on a uh, on a alchemy jug just dumb it down for us here's where we ask sure. you to dumb it down a bit Oh, no, absolutely. So um, with 18th century flavor, um, it is it's a, it actually ends up being so the for the first setting mm-hmm. uh, for the first like adventure that I created, it was very much about making it about exploring this place, exploring this house right. and having the flavor come from the items. Okay. Right. So I could hand out the picture of the item. Um, or describe it in a way because I'm, you know, I've got a, this audience that is very familiar with a lot of these things. Um, as time has gone on, the flavor has come from 18th century characters confronting the kind of shit a D&D adventurer. So my favorite player, it, Professor Alice Villasenor, she's a Jane Austen scholar. So she decided <clears throat> to roll up a character based on Jane Fairfax, who's this minor character from Jane Austen's Emma. She's the good girl. 
mm-hmm. in, in Jane Austen's Emma, but who does one naughty thing, right? And, uh, and it's not actually that naughty, but it's, she's, this is the character that she's built, right? right. And this woman, when confronted with Knowles for the first time, healed them in the middle of combat. Wow. And almost died. <laughs> and it was a really interesting moment that we kind of talked about later. Yeah. Um, you know, because, you know, one kind of DM would have said, okay, and now you're going to die. Right. Because, D- because D&D doesn't work that way. But... That feels like the, you know, the straight road to, you know, Reddit, mm-hmm. to being featured on a subreddit somewhere as like the total asshole. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and so we talked a little bit more about like, okay, so what is her character? What's what's the reasonable things her character can do? Right. Uh, you know, how do I, and also how do I represent to this totally naive uh, character that gnolls are going to fuck you up, yeah. right? That there is no negotiating with a knoll, right? Um, and uh, it was an interest. It's an interesting challenge, right? Of this yeah. defamiliarization by having these people who don't have a medieval mindset or a fantasy mindset. They have this like world of manners mindset. Right. Um, you know, they have this world of you know when you're confronting people, you know. In theory, someone, I'm sure someone is going to tell me somewhere at some point, well, why aren't you rucking, f- fucking running good society? Good society is great. Right. Love good society. It's the Jane Austen RPG. Hearts all over the place. But I it actually like what it's like to experience, um, you know, this, you know, the, the worlds built by D&D mm-hmm. through this kind of unfamiliar lens of these, you know, saucy actresses and um you know uh prim and proper uh you know middle class uh you know gently reared ladies it's kind of fun and that that's something i think fifth edition has done really well and lends itself to really like i know there's a lot of critiques about kind of the binary pass fail setup with the d20 system but you know very i mean we went the opposite direction and brought it completely contemporary and then added an unhealthy amount of dick jokes. So the opposite of the age of manners, but the five E's. Oh, no, 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 no. Dick jokes. Oh, no. If I have, uh, please let me not dissuade you. Dick jokes are in Jane Austen. Uh, and dick jokes are the part and parcel of the 18th century. If you're not calling somebody a dick or drawing dildos with wings, you're, you're not in the 18th century. I know about, okay. so I don't know. Okay. <laughs> They, they transcend time. They the time but there's, there's cave walls with with those on there. No, for real, for real. Um, you know, the the Victorians have much to explain in terms of their whitewashing, their rejection of the own their own sexuality mm-hmm. that was that was very clearly happening at the same time, but also their kind of scrubbing of of the past. Yeah. Uh, and uh, part of my job is constantly to say, like, the 18th century was dirty and bitchy and mean, and you know, very much like our own time in a lot of ways instead of yelling at people on twitter Mm -hmm. you yelled at them in the coffee shop or made fun of them you know uh in you know uh, you know what was called illegitimate theater uh you know the stuff that wasn't happening on the main stage kind of deal doctor you have ruffled our petticoats is doc is the uh drinking yeah i mean it's like this Mr. Bible Pants is absolutely this kind of chain reaction of, you know, the Edwardians creating the prudery of the Victorians, but the Victorians 
I assure you, like put in their fair share of kind of uh, judging stuff and, and making selections about what was acceptable to remember and what wasn't from the 18th century. You know, Jane Austen was not the only woman writer. She wasn't even the first woman writer. But there are a whole bunch of women writers who were saying men ain't shit. Right. right. Marriage, mm -hmm. fuck marriage. Um, there's no men going there. All the men are dead. So let's figure out something else, you know. Uh, but that's not the stuff that got public, republished and preserved and, and thought about because it was, you know, not in the not in the benefit of the empire. Right. At, that's being formed uh, in the late 18th and into the 19th century. Yeah. And I, I think um, I think. 5e gives you the flexibility to kind of play with set and setting with that. And I think that's their push going forward too, uh, mm -hmm. with Mordenkainen's monsters of the multiverse. Mm -hmm. I said it, I'm, I just wanted to try where they're trying to get more, uh, not a generic system, but to, to focus more on kind of different world book scenarios and different settings. Um, so there's your opportunity right there. It's, it, there's your, uh, speaking of getting involved with Watsi, you could be oh the 18th century source book author. I want to see it. Oh man. You know, and it's so weird, right? Like we've had so much conversation on Twitter in the last, well, basically it's a cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Of, you know, it, it, we will never be, we will never be rid of D and D and we will never be rid of people talking about how we will never be rid of D and D. Um, mm -hmm. Those are the two constants in our world. Um, and it's tricky. I mean, I tried to, when I first taught um, the TTRPG class, I really, desperately wanted to avoid for at least part of the semester talking about D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. Some of my students already for, were familiar and it's a pretty fucking crunchy system to introduce to the sweet English ed majors who were taking this as their diversity requirement. Ooh. I have questions about that, but that, that's beside <laughs> the point. Um, you know, and, but I'm, I'm sitting next to a stack of tabletop role-playing scholarship and video game scholarship. And it all assumes, you know, D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. And so now I have to like do some serious thinking. And I same deal with when I pitched the thing for post 45 was first line of the pitch was it's we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons and critical role are going to sell, are going to sell people are going to get people in the door are going to get students to enroll in my class. But on the other hand, I don't want to give them all the space. Right. right? right. Um, and that's really tricky. Like I love, I love D and D. I clearly have been talking about all the D and D that I play and that I do, but you know, they don't need my hype. <laughs> they don't even need my no. consulting. No. Um, they, you know, there's all. And so um, when I do the, and luckily uh, when, when we talk about 18th century games and who's doing 18th century flavored games, it's the indie circuit. Yeah. Right. It's it's story brewers has kind of put a, a mark on that, but also a lot of people who are doing like age of sales stuff, um, you know, uh, you know, it's uh, Zweihander has Flames of Freedom, you know, which we're going to look at at, uh, at ASEX. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunities, you know, in terms of that representation that I kind of want to foster. And that's kind of yeah. I, now that I have two classes in the fall. I can kind of say, oh, the grad class is going to be where we talk indie stuff. And maybe maybe we don't have to talk about D&D because mm -hmm. we can't. Um, and we'll talk about Vampire because Vampire does have 18th century source books. Um, and then we'll almost assuredly talk about D&D because mm -hmm. you can't talk about actual yeah. play without talking about D&D. &D. Yep. Um, you really can't. 
Um, I do have, uh, there's an essay in, that I've commissioned for this uh, post 45 collection. I'm not sure that I buy the argument. I, I, I wanted to give space to an argument that I wasn't sure that I, I agreed with because I haven't read the piece yet, just the pitch mm-hmm. that basically argues that D and D is the worst mechanic for actual play um, that there are better options. Um, so I'm like, okay, show me, right. show me, show me an argument. I'm, I'm curious enough to see more. Yeah. Um, but, but it's tricky, right? Um, but D and D's got the market share. Yep. Um, you know, and so I can, I can completely understand why, why folks, you know, hitch their wagon there. Yeah. Although I guess the hyper people have said, and some other folks have said, you know, their numbers are the same no matter what right. they play. Yeah. So and I think, who knows? I think that's, I, I think there's an interesting way to look at it because ultimately, and I think this is where a lot of, uh, of actual plays can stumble out of the gate is it is, it is a performance. Uh, you know, it is, mm-hmm. it's a different type of improv or a different type of play with a, a level of rules or engagement. And, and sure, which dice I'm rolling may not matter. I can see somebody forwarding the argument that like a, a world of darkness, like a vampire, because I mean, B Dave did this very specifically on our, when he came on and said, Hey, look, the dice pool system and a system that encodes partial successes into it allows for a broader narrative standpoint when you're, when you're sitting down to do the performance. But ultimately that comes down to the players and the DM and the kind of the dynamic that's at and the, that chemistry at the table. And, and I think no matter how great the system is, if you don't have a good, a good cast chemistry, and that doesn't have to be positive, our cast hates each other or, or you it, 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 it can't have one really be successful without the other, I think. It's interesting to think about mechanics as kind of, you know, and how they relate to story once you're talking about performance, right? right. And B. Dave's right. I mean, I, 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 I know he said he said this many times, right? Like, it's what do you want to accomplish, mm-hmm. right? With with whatever you're doing, um, and it's been really interesting um, in the in the run up to Hyper's return of Colock Live, I was watching their kind of play testing of kids on bikes and they refined that system and actually threw some stuff out and adjusted it in order to make it work for that stream. And you can, it's all documented on YouTube. So for really? me, it's like, yes, yes, I can, I can write about this because I can see all the places that they fucked up. Um, <laughs> And uh, it's not a technical term because uh, most people, you know, edit that shit out or don't release it mm-hmm. or, you know, or whatever. Um, I think D&D mechanically works if what you want to do is participate in basically, I mean, it's it's not Adventurer's League, but it is league play. Mm-hmm. It is, in a sense, what you, what you assume the audience is coming in for, right. unless you're doing something like Invitation to Party, where it's like, we're going to teach you D&D along the yeah. way. And Adventure Zone did this right with balance, right? right? Like we're watching these chuckle fucks figure it out yep. as they as they play. Yep. But now, you know, five or more years on, we 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 got that. Right. So now we have people who are very good at this kind of play, who are skilled and innovative in this kind of play. And so it's no longer this kind of necessarily parasocial, her, her, let's watch this newbie figure this shit out. It's watching someone who really knows how to marry narrative and character and clutch moves together 
sometimes in an optimized build and sometimes in a shitty ass build, right? Sometimes it's a cloak of billowing for flavor, um, which incidentally, I also had a magic tattoo that was my magic item. And then everyone else had magic tattoos. I'm like, oh, okay. What's the dumbest thing I can choose from the list of things the students recommended? Cloak of billowing it is. Um, But those are all kind of choices that you can assess and think about. and so what's fascinating to me is is the ways in which D&D also allows for a kind of, I, I'm in the land of football, right? Mm-hmm. So in a, a kind of football adjacent kind of, you can think about stats, you can think about play-by-plays, you know, we can think about Twitch clips as like the kind of instant replay, but it's narrativized. Right. Um, we narrativize football and basketball and things like that too. My brother's a former sportscaster and I feel now that I do this kind of work and I live tweet some streams and things like that, I think, ah, yes, I understand my brother's when he was working as a sportscaster far more than I ever did, you know, when he was actually doing it. Um, because I think there's that element and, and, and that's going to be a core and growing audience, Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's the kind of artistic innovation of we're going to find a we're going to find something to to tell a good story with you know um, you know I wish I wish more people were picking up paranoia um, to to run some more streams it was hot for a while um, I need more I need more people you know fucking fucking each other over and dying many times can we have that back please and thank you um and we're seeing actually now that i think about it we're seeing that a little bit with D battle royales mm-hmm. right we've got we've had the battle for beyond with uh that jasmine bueller ran um there's been you know critical role has a long history of doing internal battle royales when they hit milestone levels we're doing one um, uh, was, yeah we're doing you guys we're are doing, doing a battle one. royale yeah. with london yeah. yes yeah um you know and there's something I'm really fascinated by the fact that we're seeing this kind of little mini yep. trend spike of, of that. Cause it, it, it satisfies all the things that we want. Um, it's short, yep. uh, it's active um, and you can dip in and out and you can make it character rich, or you can just have people just wailing the shit out of each other with whatever cool shit they have on hand. Um, yeah, it's it's one of the things we actually started. Uh, so we we hosted a PvP tournament at the end of last year to support Game to Grow, um, and mm-hmm. so many of the ca- you know four or five different podcasts participated, and they were like, "This was a huge blast." We don't normally get to do this because, especially in the 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 actual play in the performative space, you don't get to beat up on each other a whole lot, and so going, "Hey." Come over to our podcast, kick our ass. And I say that because our guys <laughs> lost every match they participated in in the charity tournament we hosted. Um, okay, I will, I will absolutely be on that kind of live stream. Oh, I have not played a level 20 druid, and I really want to. Um, <laughs> we, we, will, we will do Go grab two other academics. We will get you on the schedule for a level 20 round. Bring, yes. We'll bring it in. We'll do, we'll do fight nights, the dumb kids versus the... The, the the smart kids um uh two of yeah no two of my two of my gaming group i have i have we have we have uh i have a so i have the D groups i have an experimental sunday brunch group and then i have my wednesday group uh and they're they're in the chat so so soren and emily uh just so we're all clear we're doing this right, right. <laughs> and, and i will take come on before the end of the year 
get get you uh, do do a fight night with us and then come back at the end of the year to participate in uh, give me the belt for game to grow because the winning team from that tournament takes home their very own championship wwe belt uh tabletop titties won last year uh, i just sent that belt up to canada um, oh no does that mean we have to have a cool name oh shit well, i guess it's 18th century pick jokes yeah there you go you've got you've got to come up with these so gang we're, we're coming up on time so any any last minute questions uh that i won't ignore because i know i me keeping track of the chat and then actually talk and then from the panel harland any before we go to the chat because god knows those kids they, yeah. they're they're all hopped up on sugar and spite at this point so harland any questions for the guest so yeah i was reading your um the, the summary on your reading smells and you have synth is one of the one of our strongest ties to memory yet memory yet to remember smell without external stimuli is almost impossible for most people um what smell brings back your fondest memories oh um so my my favorite smell um and the smell i have the most fond associations with is the smell of rising bread dough mm. And uh, my students, my graduate students will tell you that I, that is a smell that they associate with me because I smell, I wear a perfume when I'm teaching called Joe de Po um, that is inspired by the scent of bread. Um, there's also a perfume that was put out as a joke for London Fashion Week called Toast under the joke that models don't eat carbs so they can smell like them. Uh, and a friend of mine in the UK, Elaine McGurr, won it and sent me I this huge bottle of the smell of burnt toast. Uh, so I'm, I've got the bread, the uh, Cantor candles, uh, by the way, their, their bakery smell is the only thing that has gotten close in terms of scented objects to that, that, Proustian Madeline like nostalgia smell. Um, it is what this room smells like. So highly recommend. Jamie, you got any questions for the guest? Uh, I guess I was also going to ask about smell and uh, how uh, important is it to use like something familiar to set the scene for your players um, when when you're when you're setting up uh, a scene for as a DM or something like that. You know, that's amazing, um, right? Like, because it's, you know, it's not been until the pandemic that I've really thought about scenting space. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's the one thing I can't do right now. Um, so we've been, because my local table, we've gone back and forth as kind of, we're in Alabama, so, you know, we're yeah. pandemic, uh, yeah. which means that we all have to be super, super, super uh, careful. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's been really interesting because I've been slowly kind of collecting those kind of atmospheric kind of smells that can kind of pop in and pop out very quickly, which is a little tricky. Um, Smell-o-vision was a disaster for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but I like the idea of like, you know, having a kind of low level kind of scent that, you know, sets the stage that gives you a feeling and that can, you know, and that can be something like an atmospheric candle, but it could also be something like what, you know, the food that you eat, right? In the lead up to, you know, when you're actually playing, because I don't know about you, but like it takes an hour for my local parties, well, any of my tables to actually get started talking, right? Mm -hmm. And doing and playing the game. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, I think there's a, there's a, I think it's an is an as yet not fully explored 
aspect of gameplay mm-hmm. that I'm hoping, you know, we've, we've had D and D has heroes feast, mm-hmm. uh, their cookbook and, and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, I think we could be on the way. Um, hey, we we highly recommend Mystic Libations. We are uh, from uh, Todd ooh. Stashwick. That's his book sla- uh, cocktail book slash uh, adventure module slash setting. High highly recommended. Um, and then the drink I had on uh, the Cantrip Sipper, which is an oat milk uh, cinnamon cocktail. <laughs> Garnished with a pad of butter when you when you serve it hot has I know it sounds it sounds horrific but was incredibly delicious and made the entire little box I record in smell incredible for the entire show so it was like man there was just this buttery spicy richness the entire time and uh, yeah it 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 lingered it, it, more than anything wants to wants me to come back to the cocktail yeah I I forget if I don't know if it was dimensioned. Uh, Dimensions Twenty Adventure Academy that they were doing for a little bit, but there was some there was some other uh, kind of bigger scale DM that came on and said, "Look, print out a sheet of paper with the five senses on it, and whenever you're setting a scene, obviously you're going to use sight, but pick one of those other." four senses and hit on that. And then the next scene you describe, you're not allowed to repeat on that secondary one. And ever since I've started doing that, I've been, okay, at least every third scene, I'm going to be describing the scent of the space that the characters are in and, and found myself describing what I imagined a lava in a cave smelled like last night for my, for my networking group. (laughs) And it's like, okay, this is, it really does. Once you work that into a narrative requirement for setting your scenes, it really does make you think about it it just enrich, it it bleeds into kind of an enriching description in, in other areas. So it's, it's, it's been, Oh, for sure. For sure. It's had a really cool side. And I love the systems and I love the, I love the kind of, there are a growing number of games and, and adventure modules and things like that, that actually give you some of that language, which is very, very cool. Well, well, cool gang. We're going to wrap it up. Any last minute questions for the chat? Let me see. What smell does Jamie smell the most? (laughs) And why is it clean laundry that sits in the hamper for weeks? Um, So you know what I love about your community is the positivity and the oh th- we're all horrible people and we really we really <laughs> appreciate you coming on um, feed off the, each other the uh, yes. uh, the 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 backstory to that because there is one is uh, we do have a a patron goal that uh, Jamie will agree to dress up as Tingle from a Legend of Zelda and fold laundry on stream oh, yeah. for an hour so that's why that's why laundry apparently is a running topic um, uh, not just because he has a Snuggle bear fetish. Um, let's see uh, if there's any other questions I missed from the chat, uh, especially here. The guest, are you sure? No, I think that's it. So, okay, gang, we're going to wrap it up because uh, we, uh, Dr. Freeman, has been more than generous with her time. First of all, thank you so much for coming on. You're an incredibly fascinating person. We really appreciate the time that y- you've had. Um, I uh, can't wait to get this back out into the podcast feed as well, um, which will happen in a couple of weeks. Um, so we'll be sure to give you a awesome. shout out on uh, on that when that promotes. Will you tell everybody where they can find uh, find your work uh, and sure. the stuff that you're doing? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter all the days because that's how I talk to people these days uh, at free. That's fried E. Um, and you can find my work at ecfriedman.com. Um, the nice thing about academics is we're not making any money off of our work. So if you want a free copy of something, you can just email us uh, and we try to put the stuff that we 
we, we publish in a kind of open access repositories. We want our work to be read. We want, we want people to, to hopefully vibe with what we're doing. Um, and uh, yeah, and you can catch me, I guess, uh, later on this year, um, I'll be on Secret Nerd. So uh, yeah. Oh, awesome. And, uh, awesome. Yeah. So, uh, and some other, uh, there's a smelly Jane Austen, uh, podcast coming soon. So you'll, and you can find out more about when that drops, uh, from my Twitter and potentially a fight night later this year. We'll talk, we'll get those. Yes. We'll get those twins. Please. So, hey, yes. So we're, because I, I can't ever forget since Jamie reminded me that I forgot the questions a couple of times. And since we, we our tradition is if you don't show up for the stream, you get at least a little bit of shade thrown at you. Uh, Harland, which party of five character do you think smells the worst and what do you think that smell is other than Todd the tiefling mm. and can't be Eldrin because he's here mm. Mm. yeah I don't like the smell of cats so I'm going to have to go with uh, Baba <laughs> alright <laughs> yes. Jamie same question which of your teammates do you think smells the worst and not Todd although we've, we've thoroughly explored <laughs> the leather pants situation in the swamp so <laughs> As terrible as Todd probably does smell, it's a little misty down there. <laughs> as terrible as Todd probably does smell, I think Moyle smells like old weed and uh, just just. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's washing his hands in bong water more than a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, well, it, it used to be until he was reborn as a Warforged. So uh, on that note, gang, thank you so much for joining us. We absolutely appreciate it. Again, Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for lowering yourself to our level on both intellectually, socially, and culturally. Uh, and once again, everybody, hope you enjoyed the show. Make the stream end, please. <laughs>